0: Well, oh, good morning. Um, so, like I had mentioned in the scripture reading, uh, this is going to be the second part of a lesson that was started last week um, with worshiping in spirit and in truth, and really, what can we what can we learn from Jesus's emphasis here? This um, part of John, Jesus establishes profound truths that were fundamental to who we are and who we would be after his death and resurrection. Remember in John chapter 3, Jesus uh, told Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So just one chapter earlier, Jesus taught a very simple but very profound and fundamental truth about what our relationship with God must be like in a new covenant context. And in John chapter 4, Jesus to another single person Jesus teaches profound and fundamental truths of how our relationship God must work as worshipers of God. So I just want to review very briefly, um, just kind of overviewing from the scripture reading. If you have your Bibles open at John 4, 21 through 24, I know not everyone was here last week. So I just want to review these, these simple truths. So for one, true worshipers, in verse 23 notice that god is not just seeking the worship itself but the people who will worship him in truth so god is seeking true worshipers a kind of person right and just throughout this small section of teaching one one of the main principles is we need to treat worship with the importance that jesus defines that is a quality of a true worshiper it's somebody where in reading the gospel in wanting to follow jesus As he defines the importance of worship, that's how we define the importance of worship. And we looked at some passages last week that emphasize not just in this context, but in others as well, Jesus treated worship as extraordinarily important. And so true worship, true worshipers then also make a big deal of worship as Jesus does. We also noticed in verse 22 and 23, uh, rather um, 21 through 23, the first three verses, Jesus is emphasizing that his teaching is something radical. This isn't just modifying old covenant practices, right? So we looked at last week that the old covenant, the first covenant, really began at Mount Sinai when God descended on the mountain and then they entered into a covenant with God at the mountain, which continued until Jesus' death. And the nature and practice of true worship, Jesus defines it as something distinct entirely from Old Testament worship. I think it may be a way to illustrate that very quickly. You think about the exodus from Egypt, a fundamental component of the Old Covenant. Was the exodus from Egypt the truth of salvation? It was an illustration of that truth. We experience, in a similar way, deliverance from a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. But the exodus was just a living historical illustration of what would be fulfilled toward us in Christ. Think about the animal sacrifices. Were those sacrifices spirit and truth? Well, they illustrated truth in a living way, but those animal sacrifices were not themselves the spirit or truth of the reality of a person's relationship with God or what Christ would do. The high priest is the same way. The tabernacle is the same way. Jerusalem was the same way. King David, the same way. All of these people, all of these places, all of these practices were not themselves true worship as Jesus defines here, but illustrations of the realities that Jesus brought in truth and fulfilled in truth. So the nature and practice of true worship, it's not that that we're, we're bringing old covenant practice into our practice today but we are seeking to base everything we do in practice in the new covenant right the last thing we looked at last week and this is we're going to pick up on the lesson this week God is seeking people who love and worship him according to who he is as he defines look at verse 24 God is spirit the essence of who God is he's not flesh and blood God is not a person like you and I God's essence is spiritual. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit. And just based on the context, I would put forward to you and suggest that he's not just saying we worship him with internal engagement within ourselves, but that based on how he begins the verse, we're approaching God in a way consistent with who he truly is. We're approaching God according to the essence of who he is, not according to who we are. We're approaching God according to what He prefers, not according to what we prefer. What pleases Him, not what pleases us. So I want to look more specifically at Spirit and truth now. What does it mean to worship in Spirit and in truth? True worship is rooted in Spirit. There's a couple places here I want to turn to in John. This isn't the only place where Spirit and truth are used together, and oftentimes these concepts can seem at conflict with each other. Kind of like in John chapter 1, grace and truth are realized in Jesus Christ. And you would think, well, grace and truth seem like these are two things that can't be in union with each other, but Jesus brings these things together. And the same way, the spirit, as the world oftentimes defines the spirit, (laughs) is not compatible with truth. But that's not what Jesus says. And so we want to define spirit-based worship and practice the way Jesus does. Turn in your Bibles to John 14, verse 25 and 26. It says, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things in my name. He will teach you you all things. I'm sorry, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said to you. So the Spirit's work here, as Jesus defines, is the Spirit is going to teach truth. He is going to teach everything, all things. And look at chapter 16, uh, verse 12 through 15. Chapter 16, verses 12 through 15. Jesus says again, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But while when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So, Jesus even calls the Holy Spirit in John 16 the Spirit of truth. And what he is going to do is he is going to reveal all truth. And specifically, we're going to see in a moment, the emphasis is Jesus is going to send the Spirit to reveal truth through his apostles who are going to write down truth for us to know and to understand as well. But just for this first point, Jesus promised that his spirit would guide the apostles into all truth. Now, he says there were many things he had to say that they couldn't bear now and that this was going to come later. Here's some things that they didn't understand, and and these are things that we're going to see are inherently connected with true worship. They really didn't understand the truth of the gospel at this point. Um, as much as Jesus had done with his disciples, these are three things that they did not fully understand, that they would understand when the Spirit would be poured out from on high in Acts chapter 2, as the prophets had looked, uh, had looked forward to. They did not understand the truth of salvation through Jesus. Things that we now understand with clarity about how baptism puts us in Jesus' death and burial how we're raised up to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places, the new creation that we are, the hope of heaven. The truth of salvation through Jesus was not clear yet until after he died and the spirit was given later. The truth of fellowship with Jesus was also not completely clear yet. And so they obviously loved Jesus. Jesus had set a a perfect foundation in the time that he had spent with them. But the truth of their fellowship, the truth of fellowship that all believers would share together in Christ that still was not clear yet. And the truth of hope in Jesus, that the hope is not that Jesus is going to set up an earthly govern, government or renew the actual physical city of Jerusalem, but that Jesus would ascend into heaven itself to bring us to God, and that he would join us in unity to God from earth in heaven. And so none of these things were, were fully clear yet and the spirit would, would reveal these things. So look at Ephesians chapter three now verses one through five. Ephesians chapter three, one through five. We've talked a little bit about Ephesians chapters one through three um, as we've looked at our series this year on walking worthy of our calling. I just want to put into your mind that these three things that motivate true worship are the three things that Paul the apostle is emphasizing in these first three chapters. Paul in Ephesians chapter one through three is revealing the truth of salvation in Jesus. He's revealing the truth of our fellowship with Jesus and salvation. And he's revealing the truth of our hope in Jesus. Those are the three things that he is giving complete clarity on in these chapters. Now look at verses one through five. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief by referring to this when you read you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed notice this to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit so the spirit revealed the truth that was promised to the to first the apostles and then those that the apostles came into contact with who also spoke the word by inspiration as well. So that promise that Jesus gave in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16 was fulfilled in the first century through the apostles and the prophets who spoke by direct revelation. And so we have confidence that when we read the New Testament scriptures, these are words that are scripture inspired and breathed out by God himself given through the Spirit to men who wrote these things down as God's word for us. So, true worship is rooted in seeing and understanding God's method of delivering these truths for us to follow. So I just want to emphasize again for the next point. True worship is rooted in these three truths. The truth of our salvation through Jesus, the truth of our fellowship with Jesus, and the truth of of hope in Jesus. First point of application I want to make is what this conveys about the nature of true worship. True worship in a new covenant context is not just an act that we perform. It's not just a ritual obligation that we do sometimes. True worship is an extension of who a true worshiper is. When we sing these songs about being strong in the Lord or about waiting until the storm passes by and holding on to the hope and protection God is providing. These are meant to be truths we are singing that are an extension of what we understand about our perpetual, consistent relationship with God. We're not just singing these songs or praying in a moment separate from our ongoing relationship with God. As true as our salvation is, as true as our fellowship is, and as true as our hope is in Jesus, as constant as those truths are, so the mind that engages in true worship is constant as well. So when we understand we believe these things that God has done and given us, it motivates true worship. And I want to illustrate this in what might seem like an unusual place. Turn to Psalm 78. Um, I really tried hard, I was telling Eva this in the car this morning, I really tried hard to not use the scripture for this lesson. This made sense to me, from the get-go. This is a a passage that, to me, proves these points clearly, um, but it can seem very disassociated from these points, but I think as, as we read it, it'll seem clear how associated it is. For one, this is a psalm. This is a historical psalm. The psalmist is reciting the history of Israel, and psalms were written not just for purposes of prayer, but for worship, and I think the reason why this psalm is written is for this very point that we're looking at this morning, that true worship is rooted in faith. So Psalm 78, 34 through 42, we'll look more at this after the reading. When he killed them, then they sought him and returned in search diligently for God. And they remembered that God was their rock and the most high God, their redeemer. But they deceived him with their mouth and lied to him with their tongue. For their heart was not steadfast toward him, nor nor were they faithful to his covenant. But he, being compassionate, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. And often he restrained his anger and did not arouse all his wrath. Thus he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and does not return. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Again and again, they tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power the day when he redeemed them from the adversary. So just picking up from the last uh, point of application from worship being rooted in the spirit. For Israel, everything they did with God was an act. It was an event. They were delivered from Egypt. When the event was over, they forgot about it. They were at Mount Sinai. As soon as they leave the mountain, they forgot about it. It was just one action and then another action and another and nothing was changing their heart. Nothing was staying within them to teach them perpetual and constant truths about their relationship with God and their salvation. In contrast, the way that God treated them was not just an event, it was an extension of who he was and his perpetual, his constant relationship with them. You see that in verse 38 and 39, that God honoring his people was not just an event on its own merit, it was an extension of his love and commitment for his people. So, uh, verse 40, and th- 40 through 42. When Israel was in the wilderness, they forgot fundamentally the truth of their redemption from Egypt. Look at the language in verse 42. They did not remember his power the day when he redeemed them from, their, from the adversary. So much of the New Testament is emphasizing fundamental truths of our salvation and constantly looking back to give greater clarity Where has God taken us from? What was our condition when we were lost in sin? What does that say about the love of God for us, that he would remember us in that condition and come to find us and deliver us? Because Israel forgot that truth, as a consequence, everything else was forgotten. You know why in the world so many congregations compromise their congregational worship? It's because they don't understand salvation fundamentally. It's because they forget the truths that are most fundamental in our relationship with God. If we can understand not just the teaching truths, the doctrinal truths of salvation, but the depth of meaning behind those things, it equips us to remember the realities of who God is, right? So the first thing is forgetting the truth of our redemption causes us then to compromise other truths beyond that. They forgot the truth of their fellowship with God and their hope in him. God was actively leading them to the promised land. Everything that they wanted was where they were going. And they didn't value their fellowship that they had proactively within the desert itself. They really did have everything they needed and even the things that were being withheld from them were to teach them greater truth about their greater relationship with God. And so when they didn't have the food or the water that they wanted when they wanted it, God was not just pointlessly withholding things. He was trying to teach them about the truth of their salvation, the truth of their fellowship with him, and the truth of the hope that they had in him, right? And so because they forgot their redemption, they forgot these other truths as well. And so they pained and dishonored God but here is an important contrast. Verse 39. They forgot, but God didn't. Notice in verse 39, he remembered their nature. We concluded the last lesson with God is spirit, right? And those who worship him fundamentally worship in spirit. Worship is based in who God is. So God remembered their nature, that they were but flesh. And so God controlled his passions. God's anger and wrath, God is passionate about his justice. Justice, in a sense, demanded the death of those who were rebelling against him. And yet God, because of his covenant, because God remembered where they had come from, God had remembered the words that were communicated to those people, because he was being true to himself and true to who they were, and because he was being true to the hope he had given them, he, com- he compromised, in a sense, he controlled his justice and his wrath to show them mercy right so here's the point true worship involves self control if god has such self control in his commitment toward us it is only fair isn't it that when we approach god that we would show him that same honor if god honors us and puts us in such a high position unduly when we're unworthy How much more if God is worthy, that we have self-control when we approach him. Again, true worship is rooted in faith, that we're depending on God's word as truth. We're depending on God's promises. We are depending on who God is. And we're not wanting to rely on ourselves in worship. We don't want to mix our wisdom with God's. We want God to lead our worship. We want his words to be the foundation of everything that we do. We want to have self-control because the psalmist who wrote this was reciting things to encourage this same self-control, that God is worthy, and he did not want to make the same mistake as those who forgot how worthy God, God was, clearly through the things that he had done for them. Um, last point of the lesson. True worship is rooted in truth. And this is what really brings everything together. You know, the things that God has done, his, his spirit being given, salvation being brought into its fullest reality, and our fellowship and our hope in Christ, these things inspire eagerness. They inspire joy and passion in worshiping God. They encourage us to exalt God with our inner being. But what is truth? Look at John chapter 18. This is an important question that I think Pilate asked but the irony is he asked this question when Jesus had actually already answered it um, so John 18 verse 36 through 38 John chapter 18 uh, 36 through 38 so this is when Jesus is on trial he's, he's talking with Pilate who is the governor who has the authority to condemn Jesus to crucifixion This is one of the last conversations Jesus has with him. Verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So are you a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Stop there. So the irony is, again, Pilate said, well, what is truth? And Jesus is saying, this is truth. The truth is that he is the king. The truth is that he is the king above every king. He is the authority above every authority. The truth is his kingdom is not of this world. And the truth is that he has citizens who are members of that kingdom who listen to his voice, and what they do is they love and revere his authority as a king. You know, sometimes when we study biblical authority, it can be treated kind of like this law-keeping empty concept, and it's not. God's authority, the authority of Jesus, is a concept we love to study. We love considering Jesus enthroned and our submitting ourselves to him, We love thinking about scenes like in Revelation when surrounding the throne are angels proclaiming the worthiness of God. We love thinking about the 24 elders surrounding the throne who with crowns on their heads cast them down before the throne and bow with their heads in reverence. Again, proclaiming the worthiness of God. We love the living reality of Jesus' authority. We love being careful with his authority. So a few principles in this. Remember Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says after his resurrection, he's about to give his disciples the gospel call to go and preach, but he starts by saying all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, all authority. So the question is, well, how do we treat Jesus in a way that reflects his authority? Because what Jesus told Pilate is he is a king and he does have a kingdom, but It's only those of the truth who hear his voice. Those who recognize who he truly is and want to submit everything to his rule. A couple of strange illustrations. These lessons, I know, have had some illustrations that you may not think of right away, but I think these two passages, I think, illustrate this so beautifully. Turn to Genesis chapter 41. Um, In Genesis 41, Joseph is being exalted as an authority. And Joseph in so many ways is, again, a living reflection of Christ, a living illustration of who Jesus is. Um, Genesis 41, um, you might notice above verse 38 a heading. My Bible says Joseph is made a ruler of Egypt just like a inserted heading. Um, But after Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams about the years of famine and abundance that are coming, In verse uh, 40, we'll go back to verse 40. Pharaoh tells Joseph, You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. He had him ride in his second chariot and they proclaimed before him, Bow the knee and he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. I love verse 44. I love thinking about Jesus that way. You know, here's Joseph, the savior of Egypt and his brethren. This exalted position is the reason why the exodus would ever happen because God brought a great deliverance, not just from Egypt, not just in Egypt, for Egypt, but for Joseph's brothers, his father. Um, But how is Joseph's authority to be treated as a savior of the land, as somebody who is wise in a way that was incomparable, um, somebody who is second in command to the king of Egypt? Without your permission... No one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. What if we thought about Jesus' authority in that way? That what I want is permission. I don't want to raise my hand unless Jesus gives me permission. I don't want to speak or eat food unless Jesus gives me permission. And we have so much freedom, so much grace, so much mercy, we can easily take for granted who Jesus is as a king and we begin to treat him only as a friend and not as a king we have so much freedom where we can eat whatever we want we can eat when we want there's no unclean food we can eat bacon we can eat from cows and whatever we have total freedom we can use our our time in all sorts of different ways we can work at all sorts of different jobs but it's because Jesus has given us permission so when we're dealing with worship how can we have this attitude where I want to look in my Bible and what I want is I want to make sure we have permission for everything we do. And if you're ever visiting with a church or you're looking for a church or whatever, they should always be open to the question, where do you get your permission to do this? And we ought to invite those questions here. We do the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. Where do we get permission for that? We sing songs without guitars and pianos and whatever. Where do we get the permission to do things that way? We you know, we teach lessons from God's word. It's, everything should be based in permission we know we have from the king. That is how we treat Jesus as a king. Ecclesiastes 8 verse 4, for the sake of time, I just put that on the board. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? You know, the reality of spirit and truth is it defies natural expectation, Right? And that is one of the clearest things that's conveyed in the gospel is Jesus was constantly fighting to help people understand the kingdom is not what naturally makes sense. The truths of the kingdom are not truths that you would naturally expect. Jesus is not the king you would naturally expect him to be. So since the word of the king, though, is authoritative, when Jesus speaks, that's it. When a king speaks, it's over. And if we're citizens of his kingdom, and if we hear his voice, then it's not, it's not even within the realm of questioning. If Jesus definitively says, do it this way, then if I understand who he is, it's not, well, why, why are we going to do it that way? I don't like doing it that way. I wish we would do it another way. You may wish for that, but Jesus is the king, and I'm not. Because the truth is, as Jesus was testifying to it, is not just that he is a king as a fact. What does the cross convey about the wisdom of the king in contrast to mine? What does the cross convey about when I try to step into the realm of taking authority away from Jesus? The results are catastrophic. So if I learn from the cross the kind of king that he is with humility, I just want his word to be the authority, the absolute end of every single question of permission. So we should want permission, but we should be satisfied with the answers even when it may not fit our preferences remember from the first lesson we talked about how um the pharisees had a lot of practices that seemed to make sense they had all of these additions that jesus called vain worship Uh, they're just doctrines of men and and those things had all sorts of appeals naturally and and they made sense naturally um but our responsibility is just to be satisfied with the word of the king. Acts 2.42, and this will be the concluding passage of the lesson. You know, so Jesus being king, how he became king, what that means about us and where we are, all of these things are all in Acts chapter 2. And the point of these lessons is really to springboard us into continuing to study more specifically these things. So we're going to continue to look at the organization of the church defining the church we're going to continue to look at the work of the church and what does the church have the authority to do together we're going to look at those things and we're going to look for New Testament answers for those questions so that we understand what the church is what the practice of the church is and what the purpose of the church is Acts 242 everyone kept feeling a sense of awe oh, I'm sorry that's verse 43. Uh, Verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. You know, one of the most fundamental conclusions of a lesson like this is, is we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. That is, it's so simple, but you know that for the most part in the religious realm, that's just, it's not done. And so we need to look into the Bible for our answers. We need to be a people dedicated to the truth And not just worshiping in spirit and in truth, just as in action we do sometimes, but because we want to pour out reverent adoration for Christ who has redeemed us, who sustains our fellowship with God by covenant, and who has given us hope that one day we will be with him in perfect unity in heaven in a resurrected glory. Because we look forward to these things, because we're humbled by receiving these things, we worship him. And we worship him as king. We honor him as a king. So if there's anything that we can do for you this morning, um, we would always ask that you would consider this time as an invitation. Uh, Jesus has died to invite us into the very presence of God and to experience the joy of the liberty of being freed from captivity to sin into the world. And if there's anything we can do in regard to responding to that plea or anything else at all, please bring it forward while we stand and say?